desertification. 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 Yeah. <laughs> this isn't a desert island, it's a desert island. Demi-old mental plane of salad dressing comes again. Um, Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes, or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the programme. In the appendix of his 1965 novel, June, Frank Herbert discusses the centuries-long effort that's required to terraform a planet. He says, So it was true, as this Ummah had said in the beginning, the thing would not come in the lifetime of any man now living, nor in the lifetime of their grandchildren eight times removed, but it would come. He goes on, The course had been set by this time. The ecological freemen were aimed along their way. Liet Kynes had only to watch and nudge and spy upon the Harkonnens, until the day his planet was afflicted by a hero. This epic novel combines some of the themes we've discussed a lot on this podcast, including religion, politics, ecology and fate, along with some of our other favourites, lasers, sandworms and the thought of Carl Jung. I'm Alex Hoseason. Discussing June with me today are... John Wood. Kurt Conway. And Matthew Camp. So... Matt, this was your choice this time. Um, yeah, I actually got to pick one. You've been pushing for it for a while, so do the spiel. Um, I don't know if I've been pushing it for a while. It's certainly one we've always wanted to do because, at risk of being cliche, it's one of the great sci-fi novels. Uh, it's up there with Blade Runner and iRobot and Frankenstein. One of those three we haven't yet done, so I guess we now have to do iRobot at some point. Um <laughs> But its influence clearly echoes down sci-fi, not just things like sandworms or ornithopters that turn up everywhere, but it basically creates desert punk as a genre, um, unless you give the actual historical credit to you know, Lawrence of Arabia. But um, something we were discussing earlier is the way in which it heavily influenced sci-fi for decades. Uh, Geiger was influenced by it, Spaceship Design was influenced by it. Um, John, you were talking about a documentary talked about abortive attempts to make it into a film. Ah, Jodorowsky's uh, Dune, which, well, to be fair, is the attempts by a crazy person combining one of his dreams, which was loosely based around the plot of Dune, to uh, create a film based on that, starring Salvador Dali as the Emperor and his son <laughs> as Paul Atreides. That makes about as much sense as Sting and Karl McLaughlin, let's be fair. <laughs> but he was only able to convince Salvador Dali to do it um, uh, because he was able to promise the most inordinately, uh, obscenely, uh, over-the-top uh, accoutrements to it. Like, uh, Dali wanted giraffes on fire to be standing next to him as he was acting. Um, so the, uh, it might not necessarily have worked out um, if... Uh, he had gotten his way. I can't think why this is considered on one of the unfilmable novels. <laughs> but it's kind of funny, right? Because, I mean, you've got these ideas of... So many ideas tied up in the novel, religion and all this kind of stuff, all of which... is. I mean, I presume Salvador Dali had a fair position on kind of things like fate and all the rest of it. And we were just reading that apparently even David Lynch's film, they gave out plot summaries in film theatres so that people could watch it and understand what was going on. Well, I mean, the, the the novel has a glossary at the back, and then a list of biographies to remind you who everyone is. So it knows that it's complicated. Yeah, but I, I was still quite... I mean, language aside, right? I mean, you know, this is... You know, you have novels like Lord of the Rings and stuff where, you know, there's obscene amounts of kind of made-up words, right? But I don't, I don't think it was particularly complicated character-wise. I mean, it's certainly... I mean, it hasn't got that many characters, right? Uh, I remember, certainly I was very young when I first read it, but I found it very difficult to keep who everyone was meant to be in line initially. Because there's Thufia Hawat and Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho and Luto Atreides, and then that's just one group, and they've got weird made-up names. And Yeah, I think that's probably true, but I think it's got something to do with the fact that the, the novel starts very quickly. Right, like right from the beginning of the novel, stuff is happening that is going to be important and is going to be called back later. Right? I mean, it, it, it's not 
necessarily that the Maybe it's just the fact that they're made up names. Well, I mean, it certainly starts quickly. I mean, it's like chapter one and two and so on. They're discussing whether or not the central protagonist is Space Jesus. Right, yeah, yeah. And there's no lead into that. There's no slow build-up. It's like, he might be the Messiah. Let's, you know, check. I think it also begins, the language almost begins with the assumption of you knowing, right? I mean, it says on the couple of days before they leave Caladan or whatever, I think the phrase, the, the... matron mother or whatever of the Bene Gesserit went to see the boy Paul right I mean that's quite biblical language for yeah. what is well I mean I, I suppose it's <laughs> in some ways it's a biblical novel but, um, but I mean you're able to rattle those names off comfortably now I mean obviously they're quite settled and I think as the novel goes on I mean they become more settled stereotypes right? yeah I guess there's a slight problem of and this is it's not a problem, it's actually a strength, is that you don't know who's going to become important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is especially true in the betrayal-based world of the Great Houses, where anyone might be backstabbing anyone else, but also the world of the Fremen, where death is meant to be this constant possibility. Mm-hmm. So it's probably a strength that it's actually kind of hard, in a George R. R. Martin sense, to know who to pay attention to, chapter to chapter. You're a fan of Game of Thrones, isn't it? Stick. I would say so, but I would also think that Dune is a lot sparser in its characters and characterization than George Martin's world, because in many ways, Dune isn't really the story, I would say so much, of the characters, because Frank Herbert wrote the history of the planet Arrakis long before he really started to focus in as, yeah, as a result of his editor telling him to, on the actual story contained in Dune, because he thought that the the world of Dune was far more interesting than the individual history of Paul Atreides. So, yeah, I, disagree, uh, I agree and slightly disagree with you. I, I think, actually, that's an interesting point, because thinking back to reading this when I was a kid, as opposed to reading it the second time, last week, this weekend actually, um, I think one of the things that did suck me in was the world, right? I mean, it's it, it's relatively coherent, apart from yeah. the odd kind of sci-fi handy wave thing, like S.H.I.E.L.D. and all the rest of it. You know, it makes sense kind of as a system, and reading the overall arc of the series, which I read a summary of, it kind of makes sense, right? And it, actually, the good thing about that kind of element of world building in terms of Arrakis being the central character is it makes sense in the broadest sweeps of the story everything comes back to um, to the spice and uh, as the kind of permissive as the thing that allows the empire to exist right the ability to travel is entirely based on the history of Arrakis and then it also makes sense as a, at a character level where the character seizes control of the spice right that's what the story is about is a guy gaining control of a planet that produces the ability to travel between the stars, right? So it kind of makes sense at all those levels. So for me, Arrakis is definitely the central character. And funnily enough, if a planet is able to have character development, then it's got more character development than most of the characters in the book. (laughs) (laughs) I certainly agree that's the case with the sandworms, who go from being this unknown, unknowable, malevolent presence to merely being a dangerous animal, to being a god, to being a scientific tool and a weapon. and yeah, yeah. They, they undergo as a mythological device a huge development across the novel. But you're right in that there's not a lot of characterization for many of the people who populate the novel. I mean, the funny thing is actually, based on the amount of impact that this novel's had and everything that's spawned from it, the funny thing is the bits that get exported, right, the sandworms is this kind of iconic character in any number of video games and other things. It's always the invisible malevolent force, right? I mean, that's that's the bit that gets taken away rather than this in, entire really quite well, dare I say it, modelled idea of what that might look like and what that could be to people and all the rest of it. I think part of why the characters might seem to be relatively underdeveloped in terms of the plot is the the way in which, because of these sort of uh, hyper-accentuated abilities to recognise small gestures, and several of the characters have these abilities, 
the uh, narrative spends a lot of time describing conversations in like, extreme detail in terms of little, uh, these tiny little characteristics. Yeah. And so we get sort of insights into the minutiae of uh, these uh, events, but without ever really understanding what the person behind those uh, signals is feeling. It's all very almost like behavioural. So it's, it's observing from the outside what people are doing rather than how they feel. Or And when, when it does come to describing how people feel, they tend to sort of uh, not really have any discernible feelings about things at all. Well, the only one that gets brought up repeatedly is Dr. Yue, who's... Every time we see things from his perspective, he's definitely going to betray everyone. And every time we see him from someone else's perspective, he's definitely not going to betray everyone. He's got a diamond on his forehead. <laughs> the, the diamond tattoo of I'm not going to betray anyone. Um, and that's the only one that is, is dealt with in any depth. And they come back to it over and over again. And we, Okay, it's really well written and it's interesting. And there's that wonderful back and forth where UA deliberately makes a faux pas so that other people pass his nervousness off as he yeah. made that social faux pas. But equally, that's really the only in-depth attempt we get at anyone's characterization, and it involves everyone in the book being wrong about them. I mean, actually, given the kind of feudal or aristocratic elements of the way the kind of society in the book, I was really reminded of um, a lot of sociological studies and things that have been done on how these things work, like Elias's The Court Society, where he places great emphasis on this kind of development of manners as a way of communicating intention and so on and I think you're right Phil in the sense that those kind of tiny mannerisms everyone's got a tiny hand signal to <laughs> tell someone about three sentences worth of instructions um, how many and, fingers does this do have? <laughs> <laughs> and, and you have all these discriminating features right I mean occasionally this is used in a slightly absurd fashion like oh you've intercepted this radio signal by the way it's in a trade he's battle language <laughs> like of course they have a battle language right but there is this undercurrent, and socially at least, the society that it portrays on the part of the noble houses is one in which everyone is incredibly reflexive and self-monitoring of their behaviour. I guess this is one of the things that makes Jessica the actually interesting character of the book in that she transcends many of these social stratas, right? So she is an Atreides, and so she understands all these things. Uh, she is, spoilers, a Harkonnen. And so she's got that inherent danger to her. She under, She's part of the Fremen legends, so she's that too. She's a member of this Bene Gesserit witch-esque group, so she's that as well. She's a mother, she's a warrior. She slips through all these social strata, and so we can see all of these features from her point of view. I did find it kind of... Sorry, John. I did, I did, I did find it kind of ironic in the prophecy thing, where it's like... Who are we waiting for? Well, we're waiting for a person from beyond the stars. Okay, we're waiting for a person from beyond the stars who's a witch and can do this and has a son and is a mother. And Jessica's like, yeah, I'm all those things. <laughs> <laughs> because this is well, uh, one of the, the problems in Dune, which makes it like almost Gormenghast-like in its uh, uh, ossification of society. Because, I mean, it's supposedly somewhere between eight and 10,000 years that things socially have been incredibly stable and all the formal rules and as you say things like battle languages have had enough time to work themselves out over generations and you know hundreds of generations so not only stuff like the the Bene Gesserit um, infiltration of ideas into all the primitive societies but their control from primitive societies all the way up to the imperial court is I would say one of the defining features of the book is they, they are the chess masters, although you rarely get to see it in the first novel. But I think the main difference is that between Dune and Gormenghast, which is a kind of what you might call a, a low fantasy novel, like no magic or anything about a kind of millennia old society and the rituals that it goes through, is that Gormenghast qualifies as parody, whereas in Dune, Frank Herbert plays it pretty straight. Um, and so quite often these things end up coming up as like kind of really odd kind of deus ex machina kind of interventions. What do we think of the Bene Gesserit as a presence? Because they're the only predominantly feminine presence in the book, and yet they're evil, controlling chess masters who bewitch innocent men with their sexy voices and... have created social ossification for ten millennia. 
They, 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 they don't, you know, portray themselves well, really. Well, they're also effectively eugenicists by this sort of forced interbreeding of various houses to produce the perfect whatever they're looking for. The, the, the other messed up bit being that their, their magic powers are incomplete and the thing they really need to complete their magic powers is a perfectly bred man. And then people come along and save everything is a bit of a... That's an interesting choice that a male author made about the, the powerful woman in his novel. The, their weakness is that they're not men. Well, it's certainly implied towards the end of the novel that the incompleteness of the Bene Gesserit plan demonstrates the fact that actually their plan may have been an instance of someone else's plan, right? Um, which, I don't know, it feels a bit strange. I mean, it's probably worth saying in the, in the board game of Gene, which is out of print but is quite famous, it's a bit like Risk. All the, pl- all the players have slightly different abilities based on the house they play and everything else. And the Bene Gesserit player has just about everything completely normal, apart from the fact that at the beginning of the game, they write down who is going to win. And if that person wins, then they win. <laughs> <laughs> Which, um, I mean, I think it was a little bit... It was more interesting at the beginning of the novel when their powers were still slightly mythical, right? So, you know, when they're escaping in through Arrakis and all the rest of it, and they say, oh, you know, by the way, this saying, oh, you know, that's obviously something that's planted here so that some Bene Gesserit can get out if they're ever in trouble and all this kind of thing. And it's never made entirely apparent how much of the religion is kind of natural or arising from Freeman society and how much of it is imposed and how much of it fails and breaks down and all that, you know. So on top of this, Jessica kind of just comes through it, right, um, as someone who's able, simultaneously aware of these things that are in place, aware of the kind of character of the religion, but also kind of lucky um, in, in, in what she does. This plays into the relationship the novel has with the, the Fremen who are the Arrakis natives and all the other characters and factions who are off-worlders. And that this is fundamentally a story of imperialism, of a native people being subjugated for the resources of their lands. And Phil, you were saying that the geopolitics of the imperialism of the novel plays very heavily into the events. I think so, yeah. Well, from the beginning, they talk explicitly about, uh, well, when they're going to Arrakis from Caladan, Caladan, whatever you want to call it, um, that uh, on these other planets it's air power or land power or sea power that are dominant, whereas on Arrakis it's going to be desert power, a fundamentally different form of geopolitical, geostrategic power. Um, And in in many ways the novel sort of follows that out. And 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 the reason why they have this fearsome spectre of the jihad is because there are these people here sort of hardened by the most hostile conditions imaginable who have nevertheless developed the ability to thrive within that niche, and therefore there's sort of this, this sort of environmentally deterministic uh, thinking going on here, where and actually it happens on the other planet, the prison planet, where these uh, kind of imperial mm-hmm. super soldiers come from. They're hardened by their environment, um, and and because uh, these uh, oh, I've lost my train of thought now. Sardukar. Sardukar. There we go. The Sardukar are also sort of hardened by their environment. I'm not entirely... So the Fremen are certainly hardened by the nature of their their ecology. But one of the things that the characters point out is the, the clearly racist attitudes that the previous planetary rulers had in that they thought the Fremen were savages because they weren't part of these imperial intrigues and aristocratic uh, dukes. Whereas anyone who pays the remotest amount of attention to Fremen society realizes how sophisticated their technology is, how successful they are at economic and political maneuverings. Um, and so while I think certainly the book is a theme of ecological hardship will make you a tough person, I don't think the book holds the Fremen as savages. No, it holds them as having this untapped potentiality, which yeah. will once unleashed by this uh, hero, by this messiah, whatever, is going to spread out across the universe and is going to be this unstoppable force. So that, that there is this sort of um, this, yeah, this geopolitical dimension of desert power as developing something which will sort of unleash uh, an unstoppable force which uh, hitherto was not known. I mean, the other thing that happens, of course, in the book that doesn't seem to be explained that much is the spice addiction, right? 
So at least with the Freeman, it's assumed that they won't be able to leave the planet because of the spice addiction, because it will kill them. Whereas, I don't know how this plays out in the rest of the novels, but they do leave <laughs> somehow. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that was kind of at least at play in their assumption. I mean, there is quite a lot, I mean, there's quite a lot of kind of elaborate plot machinations to ensure that the kind of um, Empire and, and the Harkonnens and stuff don't realise how many Freemen there are. I mean, you know, you say, like, paying attention to Freeman society and stuff, you'll realise how, and the technology and stuff, you realise how um, advanced they are or how adept they are. Um, but I think in the book, the point is people just don't know. I mean, they yeah. don't know these settlements exist, right? Let alone anything about riding 50 metre long or longer you know, sandworms and all the rest of it. Uh, having a genetically modified bat that acts as a mobile phone, which you can whisper messages into. And... Yeah, I mean, yeah. but doesn't Kynes give them a lot of that? Or the smugglers give them a lot of that? It's, it's not really stated where... And the guild, I think. Yeah. There's the... the the weird magic spacey guys. I mean, Paul's observation is the still suits, is that everyone knows that a there are these suits which allow you to survive in the desert, that a Fremen made one is better than anyone else's. And Paul's immediate observation is, just look at them, these are advanced pieces of technology. Mm-hmm. If the Fremen ones are the best, then there's something going on here. So, John, you were saying that um, away from the Islamic-inspired planet of Arrakis, the the machinations of the imperial court appear to be inspired by the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, well, it's, it's you've got this imperial figure who seems, probably through the machinations once again for Bene Gesserit, to be quite weak in his authority because he is balanced against the Landrat and the Chome Corporation, which controls how spice is uh, supplied throughout the galaxy. So... Yeah, you, you really do sort of get this artificial, later medieval feel. There's, there's an implication with the, with the corporation that everyone's getting invested in, that capitalism is going to supplant aristocracy, right? That these houses and their titles and their lands and their heraldry is going to lose out to a spacing guild who understand how percentages and margins work. Yeah, and the, even the Chung Corporation have definite echoes of the the thuggers and the great bank rollers of the yeah. of the 16th century maybe but I, I the thing that strikes me about all the major institutions that we see to this is how complacent they are and how decadent and how and when we see this about the uh, what they're called again sardaukar sardaukar yeah well, it's, it's, it says quite explicitly that the reason why they lose is because they are arrogant and they and they take for granted that they'll go and give these uh, you know desert people a good whipping and that'll be that uh, the emperor is completely complacent, turning up in this gigantic cathedral-like uh, contraption. Uh, and I think also the guild uh, shown at the end there in that sort of big confrontation right at the end of the book as being pretty much clueless. Like They've developed their abilities in terms of their own uh, way of life as far as they can go. And then into this is erupting this whole other, uh, this whole other sort of social structure which had been hidden away on this desert planet, you know, in this impenetrable desert for such a long time. Simultaneously, the problem, though, of the guilt is that by taking the spice, they gain this enormous power and logically should be the most powerful force in the galaxy, but their addiction to the spice prevents them from ever really dominating. They, they, they control all the transport across the galaxy, they don't control the spice. And as Paul says, the power to destroy a thing is complete control over it. But he also refers to them as parasites, right? Yeah. And yeah. demonstrates that the, the difference between what they do and what Paul does is effectively that they, they're conservative about their prescience, right? Their prescience is used to navigate probability and navigate space in a way to, to preserve things, whereas Paul's insistence on actively intervening prevents, or is intended at least, to prevent stagnation. Paul's insistence on that, I don't think it's an insistence, right? Paul is, Paul has prescient skills and he's using them to avoid his own death and he spends his entire time trying to avoid a galactic jihad and he can't in the end Mm. Uh, I don't think he intends the way the story ends no but I mean he makes active decisions based on the based on the things he can see right and also his one of the things he points to right at the end of the novel like the negotiation over the marriage and all the rest of it is that he basically says I can't see past this this is too complicated or whatever else Right, and the guild guys 
also can't see past it and they say well we'll wait to see how it plays out whereas paul says well i can't see how this is going to go so i'm going to take basically run on instinct but take a proactive role in how these things go i mean there is this kind of slightly weird aspect to the novel that it is extremely determinist right i mean even with regard to the way people act um in the book um i think is it duncan or, or gurney at some point says you know when when everything hits the fan basically like the first thing that shows is training right so there is this huge emphasis on conditioning either on arrakis for the freeman or for the sadhakar it's uh Seleucus secundus or the prison planet where yeah. you know and and that's a little bit strange in this book um well this is the the central theme is that the universe is deeply uncontrollable and the successful are those who exhibit extreme mastery so there are no computers but the best humans the mentats can think as well as a computer um faster than light travel is really hard but the best navigators can do it arrakis is really hard to survive in but the fremen are good enough to do it uh, and then finally the destiny can't be controlled but paul might be the one person who can the funny thing is of course in those things you know in in focusing on this kind of extreme i mean when we were talking the other day i did call it competence porn right yeah um you know which isn't alien to science fiction at all but in doing things that way actually it re- it reverts to stereotypes right um you know what's the one thing i can do really well well i'm going to solve this situation with that um whether that's playing the made up instrument or the except Paul's great at everything right so well but you know but, yeah but i think that's always the temptation for competence porn right i mean i, I was yeah. thinking of reading um a book called the name of the wind by patrick rothfuss at some point i was looking up some reviews and they basically said look this is a really interesting book apart from the fact that the character the main character is too good at everything mm. And the funny thing is that's detrimental to your ability to build a world, right? Yeah. So you have to end up inventing ways to kind of rein that in somehow, but it always just seems arbitrary because if he's so brilliant, how does he keep making these mistakes? And, and the story basically becomes about how the main character becomes good enough to win. Mm. Right? And this is, I mean, this happens consistently with Paul. He, he's a better duelist than the Harkonnen duelist. He's a better thinker than the best Mentat. He's a better witch than the best witch. And of course, in classic... Um, literature style this white kid arrives in this non-white society and immediately has to go through their rite of passage and does it better than anyone else and proceeds to you know lead them against the white enemies he's decided he doesn't like anymore this kind of is why paul still remains a sympathetic character because although he has these well mary sue qualities through the second half of the book after he starts integrating with the fremen and then into the the sequel in Messiah, he becomes increasingly dissatisfied with his ability to control events and the way they've gone. I mean, you start seeing signs of it when he's acclaimed as the leader of the Fremen, when he starts talking about when Stilgar has gone from being a friend to a follower. And it just seems that for all his achievements, it just becomes progressively more sour in his mind. Well, certainly with Stilgar, they talk about blindly following an idea being the annihilation of that person, is that there are many ways to remove human agency, and that fanaticism is one of them. And that the the slave or the chained prisoner or the fanatic are actually, metaphorically in this novel, got the same problem. They don't control their own destiny. I think it's always going to be the case in, I mean, even with these kind of hyper-competent characters, it's always going to be the case when you scale it up, right? And as as the book goes through, the scale of it gets slightly bigger, 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 pushes out to the point where I presume later on you're dealing on a more galactic scale and all the rest of it. And of course, that level of competence as you abstract from that character is always going to be their ability to control events in the first place. I mean, is is always going to be greatly reduced when you view it from that vantage point. So you were saying that in order to discuss human nature, Frank Herbert builds an almost feudalist world where certain universal truths can play out. Hmm. Well, yeah. So this is one of the reasons I don't like Game of Thrones as well. So I, I have this, I have this thing magic. about yeah. kind of, yeah, like kind of this neo-feudalism in, uh, in science fiction and fantasy writers. 
really kind of gets on my nerves. I mean, uh, Frank Herbert said uh, in something I read an interview with him, uh, I can't remember where it was actually, so this is completely spurious at this point, um, that he wanted to write a book about, or a series actually, and, and, and I think the series probably does go to great lengths to display this, about human nature, right? And in order to do this, he invents this setting where he can bring out those elements of human nature that he thinks are elements of human nature, right? So if you're going to talk about how human nature is horrible and nasty and everyone's going to betray each other and you're not in control of anything and all the rest of it, then you're going to write a novel like Dune, which is going to be very feudal or medieval in its, in its, in its structures. And it's going to draw on a lot of those tropes that you later find in Thomas Hobbes and all these people, right? Life is nasty, brutish and short and so and so on. Um, and you found a lot of the same thing when Game of Thrones came out. Oh, wow. Like, um, international relations is a lot like Game of Thrones. It's like, well, no, Game of Thrones is a lot like international relations, you know, pre-treated Westphalia or whatever else, right? So you get this kind of reverse in logic where people find great inspiration in things which are based, surprisingly enough, on real life. <laughs> um, and, and of course, if you put all those conditions in place, then these things are going to happen. I mean, and at a more kind of subtle character level, uh, you find this with the technology that people allow into their narratives, right? So, you know, you've got great efforts to make things like lasers and stuff relatively useless because of their unpredictability, which, of course, is interesting, actually, right? Lasers hit shields, they blow up. I mean, who's seen that before? That's actually kind of cool. But actually, in terms of plot, it's in service of the idea that you want dueling. It's, it's part of the design of the planet Arrakis as well, um, because uh, it mentioned at one point it has like unstable magnetic fields, so you can't use compasses. So yeah. You have to locate by local features, which again is what makes. Okay, it I didn't remember yeah, that. Yeah, it can't be. I think it's in it's in the, one of the appendices. Yeah. It's why it can't be navigated very easily. And you can't use a shield on the sand because it will attract a sandworm. Exactly. Actually, the worms that make a lot of this stuff uh, yeah. kind of fit together. Don't they? Yeah, yeah. So I I find that the that kind of um, any science fiction novel is going to have a certain amount of spurious hand waving about what you're allowing and what you're disallowing and all the rest of it. I happen to think the most interesting novels are kind of the ones that just kind of move on from that quite quickly. But this one, it runs right through. And actually, I think it's probably the starting point for a lot of the bits that I'm less comfortable with. Um, eugenics being probably the first yeah. um, of those things uh, because it, I mean in the novel it's the extension of the ideas the idea of eugenics to the kind of social thing right so with Paul you know you see this kind of like okay he's a mentat and he's a effectively a Bene Gesserit because he's the what was it the Kwisatz Haderach yeah um, you know so he's both of those things at once and oh by the way he's been bred to be this and he's the summation of a thousand year old Genetic experiment. Sorry, that was quite a long round. No. So uh, one of the things we've not touched on yet is the role that ecology plays in the novel. And well, we've we've mentioned that originally it was an exploration of a setting and an idea. And Frank Herbert, of course, was inspired by a lot of the um, reclamation projects being done in California to make grasslands out of what was at the time sand. But Phil, you study ecology as an idea in politics. Yes. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a very interesting book from my point of view, um, because I, I'm, what I'm working on is essentially a history of how, how ecological environmental ideas developed. Um, and it's very interesting, this sort of period of the early 60s, where there's a transition going on from a very sort of, uh, um, a very professionalised uh, sense of ecology and environment, where it's all to do with sort of cybernetic systems, all to do with planning, all to do with science as being able to sort of, um, to, uh, to construct the world and to maximise efficiency, to improve the land and these sorts of things, which have a, a much longer history going back hundreds of years. But then sort of uh, from the 1970s onwards, environment and environmental science tends to be more sort of um, looking out the world and seeing how human beings are dependent on that world rather than uh, placing that world under the control of um, human technology. And the vision of ecology that comes out of Dune 
is very, very much that an environment can be planned and constructed in a very sort of point by point by point um, and uh, structured way. Um, and so that's, that's very interesting when it's combined with this sort of more spiritual uh, everything is connected oneness. I think there is there's definitely an element of what comes after in, in, in there already. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting the way that the ecology fits into the structure of the novel because we only really get the sort of hardcore ecological stuff at really at two points. There's an appendix afterwards which goes into some detail about it and then there's when uh, the uh, planetologist kinds is lying there uh, left to die in the desert and he's sort of uh, he's sort of in his, in his death throes going through um, his knowledge and uh, the knowledge passed down to him from his father who was the first planetologist on the, on Arrakis. Um, and yeah I've, I've, I've kind of wondered how well that actually fits into the novel because it does sort of flip between this quite um, uh, reductionistic scientific viewpoint from the uh, ecological side of things mixed up with uh, a much more we mentioned before Carl Jungian uh, sort of spiritual connectedness everything is one uh, universal consciousness and this is actually what the, the drug spice does it produces this sense of cosmic uh, interconnectedness on the level of you know human consciousness so there is a relationship there but they're at the same time they're very very different sort of sensibilities I think partially the absence of ecology from much of the novel is a quirk of the structure in that this ecological reworking is the Fremen's great secret. And because their sophistication has to be a great secret for basically the first half of the novel, then the, the underpinning theme of what the desert and water actually means in terms of the story has to be missing for almost half the book. And that's a weird quirk, that actually what this story is about you can't find out initially by virtue of the Fremen being secretive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the kind of plot aspect of that is interesting in the sense that the way this kind of environmentalism, this kind of highly scientific trained environmentalism in the, in the form of Kynes, the character, comes together with that religious aspect is precisely through Kynes basically becoming a religious prophet. Right. Um, so, I mean, there is this kind of interesting plot reason. I, I did seem to remember, like, when I, when I thought back on reading this as a kid again, I remember it as being far more involved with the ecology in the novel than it actually was when I read it last week. Uh, and I was quite surprised at that. Um, although it is interesting because, as you say, Phil, this kind of idea that, later idea that humans are dependent on the environment mm. and they're part of it, um, he doesn't. He explores that in quite a hard way, right? So that idea would suggest that if the environment changes, then society is likely to change, right? Um, in accordance with that, or you know, in some relationship to that. And rather than exploring that in an interesting way, or you know, what would our society be like if our genes were covered in grass rather than just sand? Rather than exploring it in that way, he instead says, "Well, actually, if the planet was covered in grass, then we couldn't have the spice, and that's why society would change." which is a far harder principle than something that we might get from somewhere like Ursula Le Guin or something like that. Yeah. yeah uh, uh, to, to put it in some context, um, you know, Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Spring, um, which was all to do with how pesticides were killing off all the bird life and in a few years there wouldn't be any more birds, hence Silent Spring. Uh, that, that was uh, so the first really massively popular environmentalist um, book, um, published around about the same time as this was being written and, and thought about. Um, but yeah, if you, if you look at the, uh, the appendix to, on the, the ecology of Dune, um, uh, well, the thing that really strikes me is how, on one hand, there's all this stuff about, uh, uh, to quote a quotation from Kynes, I think it's the elder father Kynes, um, there's an internally, re internally recognised beauty of motion and balance on any man-healthy planet, kind of said. Um, there is this sense of, you know, harmony, interconnectedness. Um, the entire landscape comes alive, filled with relationships and relationships within relationships. This is a very familiar sort of set of ideas. But just before that, um, uh, he's talking about the planet and says what it really needed was uh, reshaping to fit man's needs. So it's absolutely not about looking out on the world and seeing something that needs to be protected for itself, 
It's looking on the world as something that can be augmented, that can be produced in a way to be better suited to man's needs, which is something slightly different to what I think we find later. Yeah. I mean, that, that's very much a, that's an Old Testament thing. It's like the, the, the bounties and fruits of this world are here for humans, rather than humans being a part of the ecosystem. Nowhere in Dune does it suggest that, you know, humans are an invasive species. Arrakis was there before humans and it got along fine. But you don't tend to start getting, you know, the, your latter sort of argument, really, I would say, until the 1980s in sci-fi. Would you say it's that late? Well, I mean, the the first time I really remember that coming through as a really strong debate is uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, where in the initial book you you have you, you know manifest destiny in space, uh, but then you also have like the um, the Reds faction who are like Mars should be forever preserved as it is, and the the debate between the the two ideas really is is one of the key themes of the trilogy. But, I mean, in the early 1960s, you, you had that pioneering spirit of NASA throughout American society, which I don't really think there was a, a great deal of challenge to, that I'm yeah, I mean, going to be argued against. I mean, in that respect, Dune is fundamentally old-fashioned. It's a book about ecology, but it's not ecologically friendly. We wouldn't call it green. Well, you would call it environmentalist as opposed to... Green, which has a lot yeah. more of the kind of holistic implications, I think. I mean, it's terraforming, and that's not natural, right? Mm. Um, but I think it's got less to do with ecology, as you understand it, since the 70s, and more to do with the ideal of improving the land and of improvement of the land, which is like, uh, in John, go back to John Locke at least, um, the idea that uh, you, if you work for land, you own the land, and if you don't work, you don't own it. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's more it's more sort of agricultural in a sense than it is. Uh, There's a moralistic idea of environmentalism we have uh, from the last few well, decades. Locke and Rousseau are coming from this point of view where they're imagining this sort of innocent human sitting around on this nice pasture, and look, there's an apple tree over there, and if he goes and works the land and gets more apples, that's one thing. The Fremen of Dune are not in that position. They're not sitting on a nice pasture. Their life is inherently difficult. And so they're trying to get, they're trying to get to Locke and Rousseau's state of nature. They are below the point at which John Locke and Rousseau assume humans start at, because yeah. they don't have a nice, hospitable world. Yeah. Alex doesn't seem convinced by that line mm. of thinking. No, I, I, I think I, I think I am. I mean, there's definitely. I mean, the funny thing is when they mention early on in the novel, they mention terraforming. You kind of imagine. And this is probably just my imagination, a slightly more kind of robotic process, right? They're dropping things from space to disperse things and all the rest of it. I think it becomes very apparent in the novel towards the end, and I think you're right, Matt, in saying that for plot reasons this isn't revealed until halfway through, that this is a process of labour, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I, don't I think know if the difference, I would say, sorry. Um, and this is coming from a slightly more Marxist angle on this, that unlike Locke and Rousseau, um, or no, unlike Locke, a little bit like Rousseau, I think the book makes very clear that that effort of labour when conducted by society shapes that society. Yeah. Locke's idea of labour is far more you pick up an apple from the ground. Um, Rousseau... And then later Marx, and Rousseau did have a large influence on Marx, has far more of this strike-the-earth style um, understanding of what that means. There's probably a clever play on words that we can come up with between the seizing the means of production and seizing the means of destruction, <laughs> which Paul would be very pleased with. Give it to Phil when you think of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're just uh, picking up on a couple of thoughts there and going back to the idea of um, desert power as this thing, and this sort of uh, this, this technique or set of techniques that were going to uh, be used to, to take on Arrakis. In many ways, it's more like uh, ecology power because what Paul's strategy eventually uh, relies on is the possibility of a chain reaction. That if he puts this uh, water of death, uh, poisons the worms, there'll be this chain reaction which will destroy all the spice and basically bring the heart. So it's the nuclear option, effectively. You know, mm -hmm. if you don't do as I say, I'm going to blow up everything and ruin it for everyone. 
Um, so it's sort of this, this interconnectedness in the end becomes the source of power itself. Far more than the desert per se, it's about the ability to sort of from one action create a massive uh, chain reaction. Well, I mean, I, I guess, so desert power is a phrase used by Paul's father, who's probably imagining this sort of guerrilla warfare skill thing. Mm. And we're told that Paul is waging a guerrilla war, but we, we barely see it. We, well, we see them doing it once, and then it turns out it's one of Paul's previous comrades, so they stop murdering anything. And well, I think this is possibly where Herbert's kind of engineering-type view comes in. I mean, actually, the way Paul ends up making use of the desert is by getting over the idea that it's a desert, right? And by understanding that it is part of something else or, you know, it's it's a constituent part. I mean, they, you know, he does say towards the end of the book, there will always be desert on Arrakis, right? But we're going to reclaim the poles or, or mm. whatever else it is they want to do. So it's actually by gaining that vision of it as a system, as part of something larger, understanding the cycle of the sandworms and all the rest of it. I mean, I, I did think the kind of oh, you just have to put this bit of the water of life mm. in and it'll destroy everything. I mean, it was a little bit kind of Death Star trench run for me. Um, but, uh, I mean, I guess they needed a way in. So. Mm. so one of the reasons that Dune feels so utterly relevant isn't just ecology and global warming. It's political Islam. So in Dune, there's these two warring factions who are stuck in a Cold War and their war is playing out by proxy among other smaller factions. And that's clearly a Cold War era thing. But for us, the Fremen, the idea that there's this deeper political problem which outsiders can't get to grips with in this Middle East setting feels very modern. And Phil, you were saying earlier that basically Arrakis could be Afghanistan and it would hold. Yeah, well, as, a, as an allegory, um, I think it could, could be something like that because it's... It seems to be a place of essential strategic importance over many thousands of years uh, where there are people living who have developed um, guerrilla warfare techniques and techniques of living in this incredibly hostile environment which no one has ever been able to conquer. There are, there are differences, but that definitely strikes me as being quite uh, Afghanistani. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's probably important not to draw too many direct parallels between um, between uh, you know, that world and our own own yeah. world. However, I think yeah, reading it in its context, but also reading it in our context at the moment, I think it's very easy to draw those parallels because uh, these sorts of issues are still ongoing. I mean, like the two thousand and three um, Iraq War, the two thousand one Afghanistan War, when they started. Um, I think something that a lot of people didn't appreciate was just how difficult it would be to uh, to go and wage war in these environments, and, uh, and that, that that's something which is sort of a recurring and constantly is a part of our own sort of political thinking. It's probably also worth pointing out how truncated the Fremen religion is. So. Paul Paul's life parallels Muhammad in exceptional ways, and the Fremen are said to be Sunni and they have curved blades like scimitars, and they wage jihad. But basically every other aspect of Islam is missing. Um, Herbert has taken the bits of Islam to tell the story he wants to tell, and left behind all these other features. And so it's perhaps a bit hasty to say, Fremen and Islam make this neat parallel, and so much of what we recognize as modern Islam is missing. I mean, aside from the obvious lifting of various... Arabic words, like using words like Ummah and all that kind of thing, and Erg, like, I think I would be more comfortable saying that it is a story that reflects the modern condition of empire yeah. more than it does anything to do with political Islam per se, right? And, and I mean, that's a soft, right, that's a soft conclusion at the end of the day, right? I mean, you switch spice for oil, right? And I'm sure a million people have done that before. But also, I think a kind of more basic level um, and maybe drawing less on the thing with the Freeman, but in terms of the political situation in, with the houses system, the Landsraad and all the rest of it. I mean, this all over is kind of trying in some ways to get to terms with, or the characters are trying to get to terms with what it means to project power in a place where you can't project power. Right? Like, you know, the, it, in so many ways, it looks so much like North Africa in the Second World War, um, you know, and, and precisely the invasion of Iraq and all the rest of it, right? 
Um, you know, I mean, the funny thing is, in the Iraq War, of course, you had all the stuff where they um, rendered the GPS inoperable by misreporting the satellite locations and all the rest of it. Um, and of course, you know, there's an entire thing in the book about how you can't do any weather surveys and everything else in Iraq is because of plot. Except then it turns out you can. It's just that uh, Fremen paid the guild not to put up satellites. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, it, it has that, right? But like, you know, how do you project power in a place where there's no one to say to you that you've projected power? Yeah. Right? Because you can inverted commas, project power over a desert that's empty and no one acknowledges it, right? So, you know, it has some quite interesting aspects in that sense. Well, there's that weird bit where Paul has the ducal ring of his house and there's the bit where he puts it on and shows it to Fremen and says, aha, I'm, I'm the Duke of the Atreides, I'm technically ruler of Arrakis. And it's like, that's meaningless to them. It, that, that ring doesn't give you any power unless it's accepted that it does. And... Yeah, I mean, that that is a bit of a kind of... I'm not going to say a twist because it's fairly well telegraphed, but yeah. I mean, in terms of it being a pure like space Jesus story, where or space Muhammad, he becomes, or, <laughs> um, where he becomes more powerful and all the rest of it, and then comes back and because of desert power and all the rest of it, he wins. I mean, he still, when he comes back, he still draws explicitly on the power base offered to him by his ducal heritage. Right, which is obviously slightly different. You know, again, he's a synthesizing character. He's not a straight heroic character. And at the moment, he's putting that ring on as well. He's symbolizing his own partial break with Fremen, who up to that point, he's had to work incredibly hard to become one of. And at that point, he's become strong enough and essential enough to them that he can reveal this dual identity and you know, make it plain. And he does say repeatedly, oh, Paul would do this, but Muad'Dib would do this. <laughs> And, yeah. kind of, and then the, underneath there's the, actual, say, the third person who's actually a normal human who has emotions. Right, <laughs> but you can you can imagine him saying this in slightly different voices. You know? yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, I that think should that, do us. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that probably brings us to the end of our discussion of Dune. We're going to see the sand dunes in Ernest Lass near Aberystwyth if you yeah. want to get some inspiration. The worms are disappointingly small, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, thanks, guys.